Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm -mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. Enjoy. Today, we have Christopher Russell, who's a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York. He's also a 40-year veteran of the hospitality industry, having served tables at the Old Evett Grill in Washington, D.C., and Gramercy Tavern in New York City. His management experience includes serving as general manager and wine director at Union Square Cafe and both Mets, Opera, and Museum. In addition to his practice, Christopher is the host of the podcast, New Books in Psychoanalysis. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy. I'm, you know, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> well, the thing that's cool about you is you're both a, I mean, you're, we're interviewing you as a psychoanalyst, but really mm-hmm. also you're the, re- you're on the restaurant side of things, at least for me. So it's like you, yeah, you bridge the gap of both. Yeah both expertise, which is great. Well, so tell us a little bit, Christopher, how you first got into restaurants and then how you transitioned into becoming a psychoanalyst. Yeah. So restaurants is pretty straightforward. Um, I was in high school and needed a job. Um, I had been delivering the Washington Post, which is, you know, early, early morning. And I guess you do that before your legal working age. I don't (laughs) know how that worked. Um, But I got a job, you know, fast food. Uh, You know, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I was a Line cook, a place called Geno's. It was combination like a Burger King KFC. But I got very lucky. There was a, I mean, this is in Arlington, Virginia, where I grew up, um, a sandwich and pizza shop called, I think, the Pizza Box. And my buddy and I worked there, and we were allowed to just be there at night alone. The owner worked the day and he went home. So we're high school kids. We're making pizzas, <laughs> make, working the grill, serving people, doing pickup. And we got complete autonomy. Um, and it was great. It was great. And plus you get fed. So that was that. Um, so I do that sort of work. I end up working at a hot dog stand at a place called Fletcher's Boathouse, which is in Washington, D.C. So we did the concessions. And at this point, I think I'm a king. Because minimum wage, <laughs> minimum wage, minimum wage in Virginia, this is 1981, is uh, like 265. Um, I went and looked it up because I couldn't remember. <laughs> and I think minimum wage in DC was 325. So I was like, oh, I, this is it. I'm making so much money. Um, I work, you know, so I work pizza and sub shops all the way through college. Get out of college. Get my first. Uh, waiting tables job in a restaurant that was an absolute Houston's knockoff. I mean, they just knocked it off completely. And I'll never forget the first day I actually served tables for tips. I did a double. I made $75 in one day. It was the most amount of money I'd ever made in a day. And I'm like, this is fabulous. This In cash, right? Like it's cash. Oh, yes. Yes. In undeclared (laughs) cash. Yes. Yes. You know, and you're supposed to write on a piece of paper what you made. Um, and we all wrote, I made four dollars today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, know those, those, those were the days. days. They were the, the days. Wa- yeah. Um, and then eventually I end up at the restaurant you mentioned in the beginning called the Old Ebbett Grill 
which is across the street from the White House. And hmm. to this day, this restaurant is, if I, if I had to go serve tables again today, the technique, how to carry a tray, how to organize your dupe pad, how to think about a station, how to group your orders, the absolute mechanics of waiting tables all came from there. All came from there. Um, it's just a great restaurant. Great restaurant. But I never got that like formal of training. I'm sort of envious. I know me too. I'm always so jealous of Matt. My husband has like the best formal training and yeah. I just, yeah, it sounds like it was like thrown in. I'm like, can I go back now? Exactly. <laughs> just for my own benefit. Yeah, just cool. a little stage. Totally. <laughs> no. And it was so hyper specific. I mean, the, and of course I love this stuff, right? I totally geek out when you set the table, the um, space between the fork and the plate or the silverware was the space between the tines of the fork. So everything was measured that way. And so if you remember Downton Abbey in the opening credits, you see them with the yardstick measuring the chairs. Yeah. That first of all, I love that. That's totally (laughs) my jam. And that was the old Epic grill. So that was, that was great. Um, You know, fast forward and probably the smartest thing I ever did is I was working at a restaurant called Arizona 206 in New York and a manager who had been there called me and she says, Hey, listen, um, I'm, I'm going to be opening a new restaurant. I want you to become and be a part of the team. And I said, uh, her name was Colleen. I said, Colleen, I got a job. And by the way, I've got seniority and vacation. So I've got everything I need as a waiter. I'm not leaving. She's like, no, no, I, I really think you should do this. And I'm like, Colleen, I, no, no, no. So finally, she says, will you please just meet with these people for me? I've been tasked with staffing the place. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like, where is it? And she's like, it's, don't freak out. I'm like, okay. She goes, it's on the East 20s. I'm like, oh God. So I Which go to East 20s. was a hellhole at the time. A yeah. hellhole. Yeah. So I go to East 20th between Broadway and Park to this warehouse second floor it's an industrial warehouse these guys sitting behind a table and they give me all the spiel of we're going to do this and this restaurant's going to be that and whatever and i said to this guy his name's steve olson and i said steve i said i appreciate that but i've got my vacation i was going to the outer banks and i can't i've been waiting for this i've worked for this i'll come back in the fall if you're still looking for people i'll join you and he said if i give you your vacation. Will you come open this restaurant with us? And I went, oh, uh, yeah, because that was where my bread was buttered, my vacation. And that was Gramercy Tavern. Neat. Wow. And And Steve Olson. I mean, Steve Olson. Legendary guy. Right. And best yes I ever said. Because everything else is history. Everything else is history. Yeah. That's not an experience where you want to look back and wonder why you said no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then what about deciding to leave restaurants in 2019? I have to go. I have to go back to answer that. I had been um, interested in emotional health, mental health for, for a very long time. So I my father had died when I was 18 and I didn't really you know, when you're in college, I had male professors. So I sort of didn't know. I had all these surrogates, but then when I got out, I'm like, oh man. And uh, Neil Diamond has, I think, one of the great lines for the human condition. He says, um, I've got an emptiness deep inside and I've tried, but it won't let me go. 
And um, so I had been in a searching mode as a searching person for a very, very long time. Um, I had tried a version of 12-step work. Um, I had tried, when I first moved to the city, I had friends who were fundamentalist Christians. Um, I loved the community. I hated the theology. But, you know, so I'm searching like a lot of people search. And um, in 1993, I had a very good friend who I just loved the way that she was in the world. One of these people that seems to be very human, right? Not like always happy. She was just very human, seemed to be able to, but she was just terrific. And I said, what is, what do you, what's your thing? And she goes here. And she gave me a name and a phone number. She didn't say anything about it. Well, it turns out that this is her analyst, <laughs> um, which I realized when I walk into his office and I see that long, low couch, like you see in the Yorker cartoons. And I went, Oh, holy shit. Um, but in, in that first 30 seconds of the, just the way that he was um, and the way that that was set up, I was home. Hmm. I was home instantly, really in the first moments of what I now know and now practice to be psychoanalysis. So I'm in that and um, I'm aware that even when I'm serving tables and I loved serving tables, my wife hated it. I loved it, but I become more and more aware. And I'm, I'm an analysand. I'm a patient, right? I do analysis every week and group every week. Um, I, I love the discipline and it's helping me with the emotional labor of restaurants. Um, and, but I'm also aware that, you know, when you begin to have regulars, um, that what, what was on the plate becomes less and less important. And those relationships, um, the human relationships. And I'm like, I don't want this menu between us. I just want it to be us, whatever that is. Um, so I'm like, I should probably be an analyst. 9-11 happens. And uh, when we went back to work, um, that first, I think we came back on a Thursday or Friday of that week, I don't remember. And a table comes in and they order the tasting menu. And I put down the fish fork for the first course of the tasting. Now, a week before that, Having the right fork, having the fish fork for fish, having a Riesling glass for Riesling, that properness, which I appreciate and love, meant everything to me. And at that point, I'm like, this is absolutely meaningless. Are you kidding me? So like a lot of people, 9-11 really set the hook. And I began, began training as, as, as an analyst. Um, although one of the captains... At Gramercy thought that I said I was going to be a cycling analyst because <laughs> I, I said I'm trying to be a psychoanalyst, right? Because uh, I had to change my cycling schedule. analyst. Well, and I was so oh, I fell so hard for Lance Armstrong. I was I was one of those people, and I rode the Etapa, right? So I go to France and I ride the stages of the Tour. Yeah, so he thought that's what I was about to do, um, and um, that world, that way of being. And really the, uh, the intimacy of, of analytic work, therapeutic work is it's me. It's just, it's where I'm, uh, where I think I'm most at home, most effective. I think if I look back on my management, uh, career, um, yeah. So the, to answer your question, it's, um, 
Uh, it's been a long, long, long analytic training is ridiculously hard. It, it, the demands are, are, um, are very, very hard. They take a very long time. Uh, so when I was licensed and ready to open my practice, uh, and I've been working, I saw people at a treatment service here in New York. So the treatment service was on 10th street and fifth Avenue. So I would see patients and then walk over to union square and work a shift. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I would have given anything to have you as my GM. I mean, this, oh God, I mean, no today I would, but then there was, no, I mean, God, I went to work in New York and just got yelled at by a bunch of Belgian guys all day, you know, who were like, <laughs> fuck you, who cares? Get the thing. Let's go. Da, 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 you know, so to have someone who actually, I guess I would love to hear a little bit about how this affinity for therapy and then your training with therapy whilst being the GM affected your management style. I mean, it's very fitting with Danny Meyer, I think. I, yes. It maybe wouldn't have even been accepted at another restaurant. But I think with the philosophy that Danny Meyer had of actually treating employees well, it probably was very... So kind of- I can tell you that it absolutely, because I worked, uh, I worked after I left USHG, which we'll talk about, um, it is not accepted. And, uh, you know, Danny writes, Danny wrote a book called Setting the Table, which a lot of people have read. Um, and he writes um, uh, in one of the chapters that he and his wife, Audrey, um, Audrey was rushed to the hospital at uh, 22 weeks with twins who were born premature and died eight hours later. Oh, God. Um, and of course, he's just blown apart in grief. And he he says, I availed myself to every type of therapy there was, including group. And it saved me and it saved my marriage. So, yes, I was in a world in which the emotional life of everybody was privileged. Um, and uh, and I think we can now look at the Danny Meyer career and, and see that he's, he's, I mean, it works. Yeah. Um, the way it, I'm trying to think about. How do you think it manifests its stuff itself in, I mean, I guess in a way, maybe you don't even have a reference point. I mean, you do cause you worked at other restaurants and probably mm-hmm. saw that your emotional well being was not even remotely part of the program there. No, um, it's not. You know, so I assume you kind of were able to conduct it differently for people. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think about this as as, as an example of it. Um, There's the willingness. So we say in analysis that an analyst is willing to be both a good and a bad object, which means they're willing to accept both love and hate. Um, and if you have that emotional ability uh, to deal with, and it doesn't have to be, I mean, love and hate, of course, is extreme, but to deal with, let's say, aggression, um, very aggressive business. Guests can be very, very aggressive. Um, if you can contend with that um, and be okay, uh, you're, it just, it's just helpful, right? Yeah. Um, I think not, about- Not take it personally. You know, I think that's hard yeah. to do. It's, well, first of all, it is personal. So how do you, because this is the problem, right? 
um, I used to joke, there was a, another captain at Gramercy, her name was Megan. And we would joke at 5.30, we're the dining room set, we're ready for the guests to come in. And she would say, are you going to care today? I said, I'm not going to care today. <laughs> Which is, you know, but that, knowing, of course, that we were about to go and make connections and care. Um, and so, you know, if you if you care, you're in the weeds. You're in the weeds at the first table because you care. Um, <laughs> you have to take it personally because to to compartmentalize. So how do you how do you have all of your feelings, not act on them? either aggressively, you know, towards guests or what I think is probably more common towards yourself, which is drinking, drugging, self-attack. Um, you know, how do you, how do you do that? And so it's really, um, that's the discipline. Did you, um, always have some balance in that realm or did you have to learn that the way many of the rest of us did? I, Learned it early. Um, I was working in D.C., went out one night, did the whole. And again, as you said, Liz, I've got a pocket full of undeclared cash. I'm in Georgetown um, out drinking, eating it. I forget that it was in the restaurant on M Street. Um, and uh, I woke up the next morning in my bed. Thank God. No idea how I got there. None complete blackout i drove from dc home to arlington wow completely blacked out i have no idea um looked outside saw that the car door was deeply damaged so i called my friend david i said what happened last night he's like oh dude and he for him this is a great story Um, right but you know i should be dead there's no other way to put it i drove from dupont circle to arlington virginia completely blacked out so I learned it very early yeah. and that's, that's, you know, scared straight. Yeah. 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 Well, but you knew enough to be scared by that. You know, there are people who have similar experiences and don't feel appropriately scared. Yeah. 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 yeah my friend David. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a lot. And so at that point, like, are you not drinking at all or are you just moderate? Um, I stopped drinking for about two years. Okay. Um, out of fear. Um, and then, um, I moved to Florence, uh, cause I'd never lived outside the States. I took an apartment above a restaurant called Chabreo, which is, sure. yeah. My parents love Chabreo. Yeah. <laughs> great place. I just, I'm above a restaurant. I'm above this market. Um, Piazza San Ambrosia. I have pesto mm. for the first time, like real pesto. I'm like, yeah. Oh my God. This is what everybody's talking about. Uh, Buffalo mozzarella. So I have this experience and I'm above a wine shop and I'm like, this is the culture. And I was very nervous, very nervous. But I, I thought, well, let's see. Um, And I was able to have a glass of wine. I said, which one is good? And they point to the black rooster on the label. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. And so that, and so then I was able to appreciate it um, without uh, abusing it. Mm-hmm. because so union square cafe was well uh sort of featured in a book called sweet bitter which i really loved reading about and it speaks so much of all the partying that went on after hours at the restaurant the restaurant that you were the general manager of at the time yeah. um which is totally out of your control i mean you you know you don't 
you can't dictate what people are doing after hours on their own time. But was that ever hard for you to kind of, or were you just like, they're in their phase of doing this? I was in my phase at one point and it is what it is. So I was so blissfully clueless that this was happening, right? So I'm, you know, by the time I'm at Gramercy, I'm a waiter, but I don't take advantage of what it means to be a waiter, meaning trading shifts and going out. I worked my five shifts and that was it. I worked and went home. I had my schedule. I did. I was doing my training. I was living my life. Yeah. Um, but I never, you know, did we, did I go out? Rarely. Mm-hmm. I rarely even took my shift drink. Um, it just wasn't a part of me. So when I read Sweet Bitter, because the author, Stephanie Dandler, I hired. Mm-hmm. When I read Sweet Bitter and I'm like, holy shit, I yeah. had no idea that this was going on none i mean absolutely none you know um and a server you know that would call out and go oh, i can't come in for my runner shift you know today at, you know runner didn't have to be until noon i'm like okay never occurred to me that they were still <laughs> zipped out on cocaine i'm like oh yeah. this person isn't coming in you know years later someone says oh you didn't know that so-and-so was the dealer you didn't know that so-and-so was doing this no clue because i never did drugs yeah I can I think, recognize alcohol abuse. I can't, I, cocaine, I have no clue. I think it's very easy to be ignorant when you, that's never been a part of your life. Yeah, for I've, sure. I've yeah. always fallen into that category too, where yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. They just seemed really excited. <laughs> I was until I wasn't. I had no clue what was going on. Then I realized it was going on. And then I was like, oh, it's everywhere. this has been everywhere this whole time. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. fascinating. So today in your life, or even at that time, what are the things for you that really keep you fit mentally and physically? Obviously, therapy is a huge part of it. Does a therapist see their own therapist? I can only imagine oh, yes. you have to, right? So it's, first of all, for, to be an analyst, it's required. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. It's required to, it's, and this starts by a man named Shandor Ferenczi, who was to be heir apparent to Freud. Mm. And he realized that <laughs> Freud had not been analyzed and there was a problem there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So Ferenczi says, hey, listen, you got to be an analysis. Um, and it's called a training analysis. And um, so, yes, um, I'm in analysis. My 93-year-old analyst is in analysis. Amazing. You know, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, so yeah, that's, so that's a huge, huge part of my life. Um, and, um, and then physically, like I said, I really, um, it's one of those things where when you move to New York, I don't know if if this happened to you, you give up a lot to move to New York. You're like, okay, well, I'm not going to bring a car. I can bring a bike. Like I just left so much stuff behind when I realized I didn't have a bike. I'm like, Oh, I used to really like riding bikes and, uh, bought a bike. Um, and, um, and then, like I said, I discussed, so when I go to buy my bike, the guy sells me this Trek and he goes, this is the bike, the the frame that Lance Armstrong won the tour in. This is 2000. So he won the number one tour. And I'm like, who's Lance and what's the tour? (laughs) He's like, oh my God, you don't know. And then forget it. I was hooked and I mean, like uh, uh, addicted. It was a little ridiculous. Um, But I really realized that Lance was a sociopath. 
Yes. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, so, um, and the book that Sally Jenkins wrote, I mean, it's terrific, you know, whatever. So, but I start to ride, um, really enjoy it. I enjoy getting out of the city, doing the ride up to Bear Mountain. Um, and it's my meditation because mm-hmm. I go out, I don't take, well, when I, I'm a late adopter. I didn't have a cell phone until 2005. Um, uh, I didn't want one, um, but I became GM of Union Square. And like, you need a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, okay. So, but I even now, if I go out and ride, I don't take my phone with me. I don't want to be reached. I, it's, it's, it's meditation. Um, I didn't ride for a while because I had an ankle injury. Um, and then during the pandemic, I mean, I could, certainly could have gone out during the pandemic. My exercise, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to the gym, not riding as much. And then I had this aha moment. My wife and I live in an 18-story building. And I went, oh, I'll just climb the stairs of the building. Mm-hmm. So I go out. We live on nine. I thought, oh, great. So I climb nine to 18. The first day I do it, I'm like, I can't breathe. I don't realize how hard climbing stairs is and that it's a whole nother set of muscles. But that's what I did for the pandemic is I ended up. And now I can climb. I can climb the whole building, you know, 10 times easily. So Good that became you. my that became my my workout. In college, I skied for the ski team and part of our dry land training was running up the stairs at Tower, which was the only dorm that had six floors. And, you know, everyone was burning incense, smoking pot. It was like the worst (laughs) thing. But running stairs is really hard and so effective. And it's something that I've used even when I lived in Florence, Italy. And you didn't really go running at the time when I lived there. So I would just find a place with stairs and run up and down. And people thought I was crazy, of course, but it's so effective and you can find stairs everywhere. So that's kudos. That's brilliant. Well, the high school I went to had a a rowing team, a crew team. Um, They were big. It was a big, big part of our high school. It's the only thing that won. We we couldn't play football and uh, we had a team. We just didn't win. Um, And they ran the exorcist steps in Georgetown. Wow. So if you've ever seen The Exorcist, when the priest gets thrown down these <laughs> steps, those are the steps the crew team ran. Good, good warning to the lagging yes, crew exactly. members of what yeah, can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then do you, I know your wife is a yoga guru. Um, yeah. Do you practice yoga? I did. Um, uh, it, it's, it's dropped off. Um, but yoga to a certain extent was, was one of the ways that I was brought into psychoanalysis. There was a, there was, there is a theologian named Matthew Fox who says yoga is the psychoanalysis of the East. Now, when he said this, this was 91, I went, well, that's interesting. I didn't know what psychoanalysis was. I knew what yoga was, but I really, yeah. Um, uh, yes, I'm, I'm married to a yoga savant and uh, yoga was a, a big part of my, my practice. Cool. And in fact, um, in, in 2008, when I had my own, you know, personal tragedy, I took yoga almost every day. Yeah. It's the only thing I could manage to do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the challenges that you've experienced? I know you mentioned an ankle injury, which I believe you said took a very long time to get diagnosed. And that was a really difficult experience. And you experienced major loss and yeah. the death of someone you cared about very much. And I'm just wondering, you know, it's such a good setup to have been caring about mental health for this long, to be riding your bike, to be doing yoga. You have so many 
you know, pieces of your support network, basically. Yeah. So the ankle thing was interesting. I was working, um, it happened on the job. I was working at the uh, U.S. Open. So at this time, I'm working for a company that does food service out at the U.S. Open. And the food service happened in Arthur Ashe, but the dishwasher was in Armstrong. So we were running crest course full of dishes back and forth between the two stadiums. Um, and there's a ramp that you push it up. And I'd been doing this, you know, for a week and a half or so during the tournament. And I pushed off pushing up a cart on this ramp going to Ashe. And my left ankle just was, you know, instant pain. Um, and what was fascinating is that the first guy I go to see, well, the first thing I do, which is so me, is I'm like, oh, this will go away. Right. So I did nothing for a week. Um, thank God I'd filed the incident report so I could get workers' comp. Um, so I do nothing for a week. I'm like, this will go away. Cause anything I've ever had is just always gone away. It doesn't go away. I go to urgent care. The doctor there turns out to be a sports med doctor who works the U S open. He's like, Oh, I know that ramp. <laughs> you know, uh, he goes, this is just going to take time. This is, I know what this is. This is going to take time. It's just time. He goes, I could recommend physical therapy. It's not going to work. This is going to take time. This is just time. I'm like, okay. How much time? He's like six months. Okay. No improvement over six months. I go back. I get physical therapy. I go to a brilliant physical therapist in Midtown. This guy's like Yoda. Um, he's just incredible. Heal you well. He well. He was so <laughs> gentle. He was so gentle, so thoughtful. Um, he works with me for a while, and then he goes, and that does it. So now we're a year out. He says, I think you need to go to HSS go to HSS and I end up meeting a woman named Holly Johnson, who's the ankle specialist who identifies that everything had been, and it's, I'm not going to say miss or improperly diagnosed because everything that was presenting in my angle led to very correct diagnosis. It just happens to be something hyper-specific that she had just given a paper on, which is that a piece of cartilage was missing from my, inside inside of my ankle but it presented entirely on the outside so and the only way to diagnosis is there to diagnosis is their x-ray machine that goes around like a cuff around the ankle and they find this little divot and that's it and they go you can have surgery which has at best a 70 percent chance of fixing it at best and the surgery is you have to be off you can't you know, walk or you put your, you know, your knee on that thing for, for six months and it may not work. And I'm like, well, that ain't happening. Um, so I never did it, but the emotional part of it was becoming hyper aware of the fact that I couldn't give my body a command and have it follow that command. Yeah, I'm standing on just standing on sidewalk. I think it was the first time I was standing at a crosswalk and a, you know, a car came close making a turn. I can't jump back. Hmm. I felt very vulnerable, very dangerous. Um, and it was really like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm, it was an incredible feeling of vulnerability at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, I think anybody that's had an injury, you stop taking your body for granted. And up until that point, you know, I've never broken a bone. I've never been on antibiotics, hmm. you know, so that was the first time in which I've been unable to say, 
do this and not be able to do it. So that was pretty vulnerable. We do really take it for granted, you know, yeah. until you don't. Yeah. We've been talking a lot lately about buying wine not from the front label, but instead buying from the back label where the importer has their logo. The best way to experiment with new wines is to find a few importers that you trust and then trying wines they import that you may never have had before. It's a very foolproof way to expand your knowledge and your palate. One of our most trusted importers is Hootenanny Wines. This is a female-owned and operated import company specializing in natural wines from Europe with incredible names like Duetere, Iuli, Arndorfer, and Vino Diana. These are boutique and well-respected producers in the wine world who are farming organically and biodynamically and making wine in the most low-intervention way possible without sacrificing taste or integrity. They are the slow fashion of wine. <laughs> Look and ask for Hootenanny at your local wine shop and be prepared to be blown away by their selections. So coming back to, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about when we chatted with you earlier was um, about the role of grief in life. And yes. I think this kind of ties into, I mean, there are so many ways to experience grief and to experience loss. And I'm really curious about your experience with grief, both from the perspective of, you know, group work and being in restaurants and what's required of you for service, as well as, you know, your perspective as a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah. So I'm not really sure where to begin. Uh, right. I ask really topic. rambling questions. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're this a is good, a good one. Uh, good yeah. free association. Um, I, should be able, <laughs> I should be able to do this. Uh, so. All right. The thing else, uh, let me start here. Grief. Um, what I'll say about grief is that it's plural. Right. So is it sadness? Yes. Is it rage? Yes. Is it relief? Yes. Is it celebration? Yes. Is it numbness? Yes. So grief is fragmented, incredibly fragmented. We don't know which fragment is going to be active at any time. We don't know if any of them will be active. But the thing about being shattered in grief is that and this may actually tie into the, 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 the physical thing. So I hurt my ankle and I'm like, oh, I cannot give my body a command. I can't say jump back and jump back. Oh, shit. So a very popular um, self-care analogy that you see all the time is, oh, take care of yourself first. And people love the airplane analogy. Put your mask on first before taking care of others. This is very popular self-help. Um, and it's true. The problem is when you are shattered in grief, what self? Mm. To take care of a self assumes that you have a sense of self to take care of. Mm. So how do I, which fragment do I take care of? Mm. How do I even use the statement I? And my experience um, was that of being completely shattered. Now, at this point, I'd been at Union, Union Square Hospitality Group for 16 and a half years. Wow. I mean, I'd worked my way up. I get hired as a waiter at Grimmerson Tavern. Now I'm running the, the namesake. Um, and I'll, I mean, I can remember that feeling of blown apart. I can remember having all those feelings. I turned, I was in my office. Don't know how I got out. I just walked out. Middle of service. 
went home completely just collapsed undone mm. woulda coulda shoulda i should have actually gone across the park and said to danny and my boss paul i can't i didn't for whatever reason um i continued to work i knew about this chapter in danny's book i go to him and i say i'm having my version of 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 grief um, and he said to me two things. He said, one, include your team. Let your team know what, what's going on. They will help you. Um, and then he said the other thing, which is, he said, and you must still show up emotionally. That's the job. And I knew that I couldn't. Um, I knew that I couldn't do that. I did look, I let my team know, but I'm the boss. What do you do when your boss comes to you and says that they're gone? I mean, it's, it's, I did it. It was Danny's idea. Um, I'm not, I'm not putting the idea down. I just, I was willing to try everything. So what began to happen. So this is 2008. On top of that, we have the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So we have the economy meltdown. And then in 2009, um, I think it was 2009. It might have been in 10. Um, Frank Bruni takes away a star. We lose a star. And it, it was all too much for me. But the thing that I began to notice was one of the ways that I managed Union Square Cafe or anywhere is I was always asked the question, what is best for Union Square Cafe? Whatever the decision was, right? We know what's best for the kitchen. Kitchen says, hire 10 runners a shift. <laughs> of course, that's best for the kitchen, right? right. That's not best for the, the, the whole restaurant. We know what's best for waiters. We know what's best for just so I always asked myself, well, well, what's best for Union Square Cafe? And whenever I had to frame a difficult decision for the staff, it was I decided this is what's best for, or not, it wasn't just me. It was me and Danny and Paul. And I began to realize that I was not what was best for Union Square Cafe. Mm-hmm. Now, I was writing my dissertation, so I was able to say, I'm going to leave to write my dissertation, which I did. But I was not what was best for the restaurant. Um, so I, I, I went for about two years on reputation and fumes. Um, but I left. That's got to be so hard, though, because so much of your identity at that point is wrapped up in that role. I mean, it yeah. would have been for me. I'm not saying it was for you, but I would oh, imagine absolutely. If, if for absolutely. me, it would have been 100%, you know? It was... Yeah, yeah. It, it was very, you know, and I tried and I sort of, you know, I realized I was doing this when I went back, I had to go back into the workforce. I had to work. Um, <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I tried to recreate the identity through wine lists. So my next job was to work at Met Opera. It was a great gig. Um, but I'm like, oh, if I can just put together the fragments of, of a wine list. If I can just pour this wine, just have this wine, I'll somehow feel whole again. Mm. Um, and uh, that did not work. Um, I, I don't think that's embarrassing. I, don't think, I, I think also that's think that's like, a good idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like any any order you can have can be helpful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So that was really, um, but I think that, you know, to go back to the what 
what Danny wrote in his book about his grief is he writes about that, what he goes through. And then in the next paragraph, he says something along the lines was, I was in a fighting spirit and I decided to make Gramercy Tavern my focus. So he used the aggression. This is so key. He used the aggression mm-hmm. from grief to, this is 95, uh, to, in a sense, create the Gramercy we know today. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that that's just super, super important. And so what would you tell someone who's going through what you had gone through? You know, what are your, I mean, if there's no such thing as a hack for grief because it, you just have to go through it, but do you have things, coping mechanisms maybe that you recommend for people? I listen. Yeah. They, in general, people will give you the prescription they need. Um, and some people need to be left alone hmm. and trust them. Um, what I will say is there, uh, there's some, there's a line in Hamilton, uh, the musical about um, something being un- unbearable. Uh, there's moments that words don't reach. There's suffering too terrible to name. Um, so even to say I listen is really presumptive. People don't have language at all. Mm. Um, I can say that in that first year, what I did do, what I did, I went and got massage. I went to a massage therapist almost three times a week. Um, And that was curative, very curative. Um, There's an author, um, Julian Barnes, Man Booker Prize, well-known novelist. And he wrote quite beautifully about um, grief after his wife died. And he has this wonderful, beautiful line where he says it hurts exactly as much as it's worth. Hmm. And I think that um, that to me is very affirming that, that whatever you're feeling is simply talking about the value of it. Um, and, and I'm always amazed. So I work as a therapist and I'll have someone come to me and say, you know, my dad died two months ago and I'm still not over it. What? <laughs> right. What? I mean, wh- 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 where's this idea? Yeah. You know, it's why I also didn't do well in corporate restaurants because you've ever worked at what, any corporation where someone says, listen, I need time off for a funeral and you are required to say, prove the death to me. Oh, oh I know. God. I know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, the idea about grief being about what, you know, a relationship is worth to you or what something is worth to you is a lot like what Erin Cannonshaw said when we interviewed her. And she said that one of the things that's helped her get through the massive amount of loss she's experienced is thinking of grief as the other side of love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think yeah. is a beautiful idea. I'm not yeah. sure it makes the experience of grief better. 
but yeah, but it is at least well, validating. But I think <laughs> yeah. it, well, this is what's so interesting. Does it make it better? I think that we're all searching for something to make it better. And yet um, it's, it makes it better the same way reading a menu makes hunger better. It doesn't. It's, oh, <laughs> there's the promise. I need food. And everybody's got to decide what their, their food is. Yeah. It's custom made. It's absolutely custom made. I think also like something that I personally have tried to tap into more is just allowing oneself to grieve. And I'm not talking about over death, even just over situations, over friendships, over relationships, changing things like that. You know, I mean, grief has so many different forms and of course, death being the ultimate sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, all consuming part of it. But, Mm -hmm. but maybe we, you know, we often don't give ourselves or other people the chance to even grieve smaller things. Yeah, I agree. You know, we don't, we don't. So Christopher, I'm wondering because of the pretty uncommon path you've taken in terms of such incredible restaurant experience, as well as so much mental health experience, do you have thoughts on the rest on the way restaurants are changing with the COVID pandemic and what you're hoping for, for the future? Yeah. <laughs> just, just really um, quickly. Just a small, <laughs> quick question. Well, the answer is I have, I have thoughts and hopes. So in the, there was the hypothesis that the reason that um, jobs remain unfilled was that people were getting these great benefits and making more money off. And the first 26 States to cut off the funds did not convert into jobs immediately. Now, I think this is going to take about 18 months, um, but it didn't immediately, oh, my benefits are off. Now I'll go back to work. That hasn't happened yet. Data is still coming in. Excuse me. It's very early. But on CBS Sunday morning, two weeks ago, they interviewed two people who were previously restaurant workers that went, oh, and they made this pivot to doing something else. Um I absolutely hope that this break has woken up the slumber that we get into um, and have people realize what was unacceptable about the way restaurants were run by design, um, by economics. Um, And I really, really hope that everybody going back into it reimagines it because it's i you know i i have this phrase which is you can always make more money you cannot make more time we were just given a year and a half off and i think that people began to understand the gift of time and how much the restaurants took and what they didn't give back Mm. and yeah that's i'll stop there because i'm about to climb up on a soapbox so (laughs) um I have two, I have several, but I don't want to climb up there. Um, But well, okay, here we go. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing, the fight for 15, right? When you talk about the fight for 15 with fast food workers, right? The fight for 15, everybody focuses on the $15 an hour. That's the primary fight. It's called the fight for 15. But in the fight for 15 was also a demand for what? Schedule constancy. Mm. Control of time. And I will tell you that when I was interviewing for management jobs, 
my recruiter would say to me, oh, I can get you this bonus. We can, you know, they're offering X dollars. I'm going to get you 10,000 more, 10,000 more. And I said, I'd like to know what the schedule is. Oh, no, no, no. You, you cannot talk schedule. To talk time, absolute third rail. Yeah. Absolute third rail. Absolute third rail in the restaurant business. You tell people you don't have control of your time. And that has to change. What other profession? Such an interesting point. I never, it was such a given in that business. I mean, I like, I don't understand how people are like, I don't know my schedule yet next week. And I'm like, how do you live like that? You know? So I, I understand how horrible that would be, but you're so right. That's just always been something like the restaurant comes first and you come second. And so if we need you, you show up and you don't have, yeah. Yeah. Like how dare you? Yeah. 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 So I think control of time is huge, huge, huge. That's such a good point. So you're saying that the issue is not just that all of us millennials want to have too much control over everything we do. (laughs) Ah, thank you for the millennials. I don't believe. Just baiting you a little bit. (laughs) Thank you for the baiting. I don't believe in millennials. I don't believe in Generation Z. I don't believe any of that. In fact, there's no evidence to prove that it's true. So she, so the study of what I will call kids these days, which is the malaise of the kid, gen- whatever the kid generation, the study goes back, starts in the mid 19th century. Um, and the symptoms have not changed, right? The symptoms have remained unchanged for 150 years. And yet we keep saying that the cause is somehow different. So there's no evidence to support this. Um, it's, it's, and, it, and it also says, hey, our current uh, malaise can be solved with historical dangers, right? So, oh, we need to go back to whatever it was. Okay, well, where do you want to go back to? Do you want to go back in my profession to where homosexuality was considered a psychological disorder? That's where you want to go back to? Do you want to go back to the point where women couldn't have bank accounts? Where do you want to go back to? Where do you want to go back to? And we all are aware of our own personal hardships. We are all aware of our own personal hardships. We are not aware. We don't remember where we were helped, where we were coddled. Hmm. To say, oh, this generation of kids needs to be coddled. Do you really think you didn't? Yeah. You really think you weren't? Or where you weren't is where you are focusing on in the analyst chair now. (laughs) Right. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I could argue. (laughs) You could. Um, So, but also there's the point of we, so you take any class of, of, of person and say, hey, I think you lack something and you lack something because of what gender skin color well that's besides being illegal we know that that's just egregious we also know that social science used to make arguments for this right um 2008 candidate obama senator obama uh and senator clinton and uh bill clinton and she's 
she needs to win whatever state she needs to win in the primary. And Bill Clinton says, you know, we're about to find out as a nation if we're more racist or more misogynistic, right? So this assignment of your isness, who you are, is why you lack, is utter bullshit. Um, and then to say to somebody, hey, the year you're born, or what you want and desire, what you're saying you need, um, is a reason to dismiss you, not take you seriously, complain about you, fix you. Pathologizing somebody for where they are developmentally, um, it's, it's craziness. It's crazy and it's lazy. Hmm. Yeah. And aren't we, in theory, ideally improving upon the generation before us? Yes. So, you know, I think I grew up in the narcissistic parent time where parents are like, pour me a cocktail and go get lost, you know? And as such, we're maybe helicoptering over our kids. So there's, you know, there's constant pendulums switching. Yes. The pendulum but we're helicoptering because we would have loved for someone to helicopter every once in a while, you know? Yeah. So I think, you know, you, you try to, or like maybe two generations ago, our parents were beaten if they did something wrong. And then we weren't beaten, but we were punished in some way. And, and like now I would never beat my kids, obviously. And so it's like, how do you, you know, I mean, when I was in Catholic school, you could still hit a kid in Catholic school. So I think in ideally we're just improving upon the generation before and trying to make things better for people. Yeah. I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we love to end on a high note and I'm really sad we have to end because this has been <laughs> such a great conversation. I feel like we could go down any of these rabbit holes for so much. I know longer. I'm stopping going down the uh, Catholic <laughs> rabbit hole. But, uh, oh, as, an, as a former altar boy. And, that'll be part two. Yeah, Cause I could, two. I could spend we'll, five We'll hours. do a special for you too. Exactly. <laughs> a, th a therapy, a group therapy session. There you go. Um, so I'll leave you with this teaser. My mother, before she was my mother, was a nun. Wow. Wow. Okay. There you we, go. Yeah. Okay. We, we need That's part juicy. two. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us something you're excited about. This can be big, small, personal, societal, whatever you're feeling. Um, I am excited about um, the young, well, I guess let's call them 20 something generation because mental health wise, they're in my practice because they, they've identified that it's something they deserve. They haven't mm -hmm. shown, some have shown up in crisis, but some of them have a shrink the way they have a gym membership. Love it. And they're not ashamed of it, yep. right? There's no stigma. So the stigma around mental health is really reduced. I'm yep. very, very excited about that. Um, in our industry, um, you know, Kat Kinsman started Chefs with Issues, right? She started this, I think in 2016, this is a, 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 she says, hey, listen, I mean, look, we, what's, what's the, the big stories over the past 10 years? Lose a Michelin star, commit suicide. Are you kidding yeah. me? So we need to contend with this. And we are contending with it. Um, so, um, and so I would say that, uh, that I'm really, really excited. I think that uh, well, all you have to do is look at, um, if you watched, uh, speaking of U.S. Open, uh, uh, the 18-year-old. We had two teenagers in the U.S. Open. Wow. two teenage women, Emma Rakanu, this woman from Great Britain. If that doesn't light you up, if that doesn't inspire you, you are dead inside. 
<laughs> Seriously. It's true. Amazing. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm inspired and mental health wise. I'm inspired by uh, Naomi Osaka and Simone yeah. Biles who raised their hands and said, Hey, yeah. Hey, me, my mental health is important here. Um, and uh, so I'm really, I am inspired by the fact that mental health is, is part of the conversation now. Um, big time, uh, you know, yeah. a big time as something that people deserve. Um, and that I think is a huge, huge shift. Yeah. That's Love amazing. It. Well, that yeah. makes me feel also optimistic now. So thank you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. It's not an easy time to be optimistic. So good to have a few of these nuggets to take with us, you know? Yeah. Thank good. you so much. This Yes. Christopher, oh, this I'm... was amazing. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah. Thank you. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate it. And to everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for listening. Please do head to our website, finelinepodcast.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and check out all our episodes if you've missed any. And I can't wait for Catholic School Part (laughs) 2. Stay tuned. (laughs) Bye. Bye.